Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have an entrepreneur that has done it, that has done it, and this is definitely another rodeo that he's going to be telling us about. But uh, he's done it from uh, creation to financing to scaling to exiting. I think that uh, we're really going to learn quite a bit here. So I guess without further ado, Milin Mihiri, welcome to the show. Alejandro, thank you for having me. I'm very excited. So born and raised in Bombay. So how was how was life growing up there? Life was amazing, Alejandro, growing up in Bombay. This was in the late 80s and 90s. And uh, India was full of optimism. People wanted to do new things. And uh, the government had just opened the economy. So it was a great time to, to, to be growing up because people wanted to create new technology, new innovation. And as you know, there was this big dot-com boom and Y2K. So there was a lot of IT innovation happening in India. It was a great time to to be in India to kind of experience that optimism. So was there anyone in your family that was also into entrepreneurship or or how did you develop that? Would that come later? No, I have. I come from a family of entrepreneurs that ran their own kind of variety of small businesses, including my dad, actually, who was... Uh, who was actually a public prosecutor and lawyer, but then later in his career set up his own law practice and and became uh, very successful and also come from a family of doctors that ran their own hospitals and things like that. So I was around entrepreneurs growing up. And what's happening there in India? I mean, it seems that when you're born, you're born with a computer or with something that has to do with engineering. Everyone is an engineer. Why is this? So that's a great question. As you know, obviously, India is a very large country and education can be a big differentiator. So uh, access to education is obviously there. And many families, especially middle class families, emphasize that you need to be very well educated. So generally, the option that has been given to you by your family is either you become a doctor or an engineer. And that was uh, no different in my case. And uh, I didn't like biology very much. And uh, and loved kind of math and like loved tinkering, and so uh, I, I decided to uh, take up engineering and actually became a, a mechanical engineer. And I guess that obviously business is all about solving problems, and engineering is all about addressing problems. So would you say that 
having that engineering mentality gives you an edge as an entrepreneur? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I further, after mechanical engineering, studied industrial engineering, and I think you're absolutely right. It gives you a way not only to solve problems, but to be very quantitative and measured in your approach. What can you do better? How can you do it better? And how can you do it faster? And that has been one of the traits that I feel that uh, I learned because, uh, because of my educational background, and it has really stayed with me uh, even, uh, even, even now. And obviously that engineering, you know, got you here to the U.S. about 20, over 20 years ago. And that was for grad school. And after grad school is when you did your first job at a company, I2 Technologies, where you were able to see the full cycle of a corporation, of the life of a corporation. So tell us about this experience. Yeah, so I2 Technologies was a Wall Street darling during the dot-com boom of 2000. And it was a company that actually in some ways coined the word supply chain in the mid 90s and they created software for you know basically scheduling your factories or for distribution centers or for you know moving goods from manufacturers to the retailers bunch of different very complex areas and the company was extremely successful and i was there for 6 or 7 years where we went from few hundred employees to few thousand employees and to a market cap of about $60 billion. Uh, and and that, was, uh, that was an amazing run because you, when the company is scaling that fast, opportunities open up. So at, you know, in my early to mid-20s, I was managing a group of 50, 70, 80 people, which was really incredible. And then post.com, uh, there were obviously a lot of stress on the company and there were a lot of layoffs and things like that. And so how do you kind of manage through that crisis was something that I got exposed to very soon in my career. So not only was I learning the various business facets, I was also learning the, the human facets and the personal facets. That was, uh, that was really uh, fascinating for me, uh, what I was able to learn in such a short period of time. So talking about managing crisis, I mean, uh, launching a company from the ground up, and you've done it multiple times now. You know, it's yep. all about how you manage crisis. So how, how do you go about managing a crisis? Yeah, I think uh, it all really depends on the magnitude of crisis. Like, you know, when you are an entrepreneur and when you're uh, running a tech company, there is crisis almost every day. And uh, so it really depends on you having the understanding of uh, how big the crisis is and whether it's really a crisis. Because sometimes what happens is startups are all about chaos. So what you need to do as a leader is figure out what's your true north, how do you cut down that chaos, and how do you guide your team towards that true north? What I have always uh, many times observed entrepreneurs do is because they want to solve so many problems, they're so passionate, and they love new ideas, many times they end up hurting themselves. And what I mean by that is, they will constantly change product roadmaps. They will constantly um, uh, change uh, their priorities. And, you know, the team then generally doesn't know which direction to go or they are constantly kind of pivoting from one project to another. So I think it's very important to understand the correlation between, hey, what's your true north? How do you kind of go about doing that? And then, you know, what type of crisis are you really trying to solve? Now, crisis of the magnitude of 2008 or COVID is a completely different ballgame. There, I think what you have to do is be very clinical, understand 
what your strengths are as a company. You need to be fast. It's important to be fast in decision making, even if the decision may be wrong, and to really take the problem head on, understand what the gaps are, and then really have a, a plan that you can execute on. Really rely on your team and motivate your team so that you know you can get through the crisis. Very profound. Very profound. Million. So, so I guess obviously here after you were alluding to it, after about six years, you decided to um, to make a jump and you joined uh, a startup, an, an MIT startup that was funded by Greylock. So, so why did you make that change? So, uh, what what really drove me is that, as I said, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So even before this startup, when I was at I2, I had taken part. I was I used to live in the Boston area at the time. And Alejandro had taken part in MIT, had one of the first startup competitions called the 50K. And I had reached semifinals, I think it was 2001 or 2002. And so that was always on the top of my mind. And so when my friend or colleague from, from uh, I2 started this company called Oat Systems, uh, which was in a hot new space called RFID, uh, radio frequency, which, uh, you know, kind of, uh, if you think about IoT and, and like big data, this company was doing that at that time when these words didn't exist. And the idea really was, can you use this, uh, you know, small chips to really create like an MRI of your supply chain or like really kind of track movement of goods. And so I thought that the problem was really fascinating to solve and the team was uh, really solid. The, the VCs were great. And so that's why I decided to uh, take the plunge really kind of uh, uh, bitten by the, the, the potential for innovation. And, you know, it's interesting that you did this because when when people that are interested in entrepreneurship, especially in hyper growth stuff, I mean, around, you know, startups that are able to create a repeatable and scalable business model, I, I always tell them that, you know, it's a good idea to first get some exposure before you actually take the leap of faith. You know, whether that is going and working for a VC firm or perhaps working for another startup so that you can see the ins and out of it, of it. So I guess in your case, because this was the immediate step for you to actually go and, and launch your own thing, how do you think it helped you to really gain more visibility into the whole entrepreneurial thing? That's such a great advice, Alejandro, and such a good point. You're absolutely right. I think what happens is people romanticize entrepreneurship. And as we all know, who have gone through the process, Yes, you can see the success of uh, of an Uber or an Airbnb, but there is so much of uh, uh, patience and resilience that you need. And so, um, as I was saying, right, that there is crisis every single day. And so I think what I really learned in this experience is many different facets. Fundraising, what's important? Where do you focus on scale? We had a very strong team. And... Uh, uh, because we had a very strong team, we had one of the tenured professors at MIT who was the CTO and the co-founder, and he was actually on sabbatical and uh, uh, for two years. And he could pretty much you know, uh, open uh, any door for us for the Fortune 500 company CTO office or to the head of supply chain. And that was so helpful. So kind of understanding what your processes should be, how should you kind of create that product market fit, uh, and and to get that uh, up close and personal at a, at a startup that was also you know scaling fast and was kind of creating innovative work was really fascinating for me and I think I, I learned so many different aspects of like do's and don'ts that was really uh, I think really valuable uh, as I kind of embarked on my journey. 
And obviously your journey, you know, one, one pivotal moment was uh, in Philadelphia, having a beer. So what happened there? So uh, I co-founded a company called uh, Yodel, which was an ad tech uh, platform for small businesses, helping small businesses advertise online. And this was in 2006. And uh, one of, uh, one of the, the founders of Yodel, he was pitching me this idea of how everything is moving online. Now, Alain, remind you, this is 2006. So there is no Yelp, there is no Facebook, there is no iPhone. Meaning Yelp and Facebook are there, but they're irrelevant and small, right? And we were still using MapQuest. And, uh, and, uh, and AOL was a massive company and Yahoo was a massive company. Google had just gone public and was a small company with a $10 billion or $15 billion market cap in 2006. So it was a different world, but the world was all moving online. And the premise was, uh, you know, uh, my co-founder, he came from a, a, a small business family and he wanted to advertise his uh, family's business online and do it cost effectively and do it in an automated manner. How do you create website? How do you drive traffic? How do you convert that traffic? What does traffic conversion even mean? Uh, and how do you kind of show that visibility? Because, you know, if you advertise in the yellow pages for 100 years, you know, we know that, you know, 50 percent of your marketing works. We just don't know which 50 percent. So we wanted to give that visibility to the small business to say, hey, if you spend thousand bucks, here are the, you know, 500 clicks that you've got. And we could actually point out which clicks convert and how do they convert and things like that. The idea sounded fascinating. And as as we all know, we are all mesmerized with small businesses, but it's also very hard and to penetrate small businesses. So he he wanted to build a sales force that is around the country and this and that. And I said, listen, man, I have no exposure to small businesses. This sounds really fascinating, but I don't think this is for me. And uh, he said, uh, no, 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 let's keep charting. I'll, I want to show you the demo of the prototype I've built and this and that. And I said, listen, if you buy our drinks tonight, I will, uh, you know, come see the demo and things like that. I am so glad and fortunate that he agreed. And uh, rest, as this is history, I really loved his ideas, the thoughts we had uh, we were four of us and and really very complementary skill set. And it was a hard problem to solve, but uh, but it was a really uh, fascinating start to this journey of opening up uh, and, and really bringing small business into the digital world. And and as you know, Alejandro, since then, there have been so many successes, most notably, you know, um, Shopify that uh, that was actually founded in 2010 and, and obviously has become one of the biggest uh, success stories in the small business ecosystem. Very nice. Very nice. So, um, so I guess, tell us a little bit more about, about Jodl, because uh, Jodl ended up being um, a pretty big success story with a really good outcome. I mean, your, your first business having a really incredible exit too. So how, how I mean, just so for the people that are really listening, you know, what, how, how were you guys making money really in Jodl? Yeah, so it was uh, essentially a subscription model where we would, uh, you know, small businesses would subscribe to our advertising packages and uh, we would, you know, obviously keep portion of that, uh, their revenue and we would help them, you know, basically build a website, create content, uh, acquire customers. And over the next, uh, you know, kind of 10 year period, Yodel scaled to 1400 employees uh, across four offices uh, in the US. And we had, you know, almost 300 people here in New York. Uh, and uh, we were uh, ultimately we did you know over 200 million in revenue and were acquired by web.com 
in 2016, about four years ago, four and a half years ago, for uh, $342 million. Wow, that's a lot of zeros, million. So uh, what, a, what a good outcome. So, so basically, tell us about the acquisition process, because obviously for you, I mean, I'm sure that this was quite a nerve-wracking moment. I'm sure there was a couple of nights there that you couldn't sleep. Yeah, it was, uh, it was actually uh, very exciting. By the time the acquisition happened, I had actually already left the company, but still very in close contacts with the, with the, with the CEO. And still, uh, you know, CEO uh, was a very uh, good friend and an advisor and a mentor to me and actually a, a, an angel investor in, in Yield Street. But uh, yeah, it was, it was actually very, uh, it was very exciting process because, you know, a year, year and a half before that, we had filed an S1 to go public in late 2014. And uh, it was really a fascinating time at that time, you know, to go through the IPO process, the roadshow, kind of, you know, like really understanding what the bankers would uh, bring to the table. And, um, and, and uh, for a variety of reasons, we decided to actually hold back the IPO and then this acquisition offer came about. And so it was uh, exciting because it was an all-cash offer and we just thought that uh, web.com was a very big name. They had access to a lot of uh, small businesses and we thought that uh, the, the, the combination would really help Yodel you know, scale and go to the next level. So it was, it was super exciting. Very nice, very nice. Uh, so I guess uh, obviously the next thing, the next thing that happened here for you is is Yield Street because once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So then what happened after you know with Yield Street? Like how did you come about this idea? How did you bring it to life? So tell us about this. Yes, Alejandro, that's a really uh, actually the idea and the process for Yield Street was. Uh, fairly straightforward it was it came out of a really a personal pain point for me many years before i actually started yield street so i am sure some of your listeners were around in 2008 when lehman went down in in september 15 2008 which is i, I exactly i guess 12 years ago um, and i saw my portfolio uh, it was down 50% and uh, think about it right as i explained to you and to your viewers in this you know, in this in this podcast, I was a pretty pretty prudent consumer. Me and my wife have you know good saving habits. We had a 401k, 529, and doing all the right things. And then, really, when I saw my portfolio, I had two reactions. One was really anger towards Wall Street because I was a prudent consumer. I thought I had done everything right, and suddenly I saw my portfolio down 50%. So. That was one reaction. The other reaction, as you said, right, like was is much more of an entrepreneurial reaction, which is I realized two things. I don't have access to any products outside the stock market that are not volatile. So when the market goes down, all of my products are down. And I don't have access to products that generate income on the side for me, like a passive income, like the top 1% of the population does. And so that idea stuck in my mind. And so what would I do next? Obviously, I went to my financial advisor, like any prudent consumer. And I said, hey, can I get access to products that are not related to the stock market? What about private equity firms and all of these funds and hedge funds? You've been in New York, Alejandro, as you know, right? Like we get exposed to so many. I had friends working in hedge funds and private equity funds. And my financial advisor started laughing. He said, ha at your account size, no, you, you can't get access to those products because you usually need to put seven-figure money down, at least a million dollars down. And, and then you 
have to commit to seven to ten years, which is a very long time, right, to lock up your money. Yeah. And I was very disappointed, and so that idea kind of stuck in my mind. And then, uh, you know, obviously this was the time when 2009-10 Yodel was still scaling and doing really well, but this idea was in my mind. And so, fast forward a few years, fintech really kind of took off, right? And uh, what happened is Jobs Act uh, passed in 2011-2012, and that really changed uh, uh, who could access these type of investments because they, you know, expanded the the definition of who could access these investments. And there was a lot of momentum in the fintech kind of investing space. So think about Betterment or uh, SoFi or Angels List or Lending Club. Like there are all these cluster of companies trying to bring innovative products to the market. And uh, obviously, this idea was stuck in my mind. I wanted to do something about this to kind of solve my own investing problem. But you know, I had one big problem, which was I did not come from financial services or the investing world. So obviously, I was a prudent consumer. You know, I had done investments on the side, you know, during my time as I kind of got successful in my career, including angel investments, etc. But I had never done investments for living. So that's really where I was very fortunate. I met my co-founder, Michael Weiss, who had come from the credit world, who had come from like the PE hedge fund world and was a really strong investment manager, uh, you know, great background in compliance and risk. And he, being a millennial, was also frustrated that, you know, the, the types of investments that he, you know, you really had to be a high net worth individual or a family office to invest in those type of investment. And he said technology and data should be able to bring these investments more broad to the main street. And uh, I really clicked with him. We met six, six and a half years ago. And we really had complementary skill set where I knew like marketing operations, tech and how to kind of build the brand. And he really knew investments, alternatives, uh, risk management, compliance. And so we had complementary skill sets. And that's how, you know, Alejandro, uh, this is the kind of the longer version of like how we thought, you know, uh, Yield Street to come, should come to market. And uh, that's when we decided to start the company in, in 2015. Uh, the other undertone to all this, Alejandro, is that, you know, even... This year, and especially post the pandemic, there is always, and, and you know, even before the pandemic, to be honest with you, there is a big chatter about kind of income inequality. And, uh, uh, you know, most innovation in fintech is as focused on digital payments, as you as you know, right? Like big, uh, you know, digital payments, neobanks, consumer credit cards, things like that. And in, you know, income equality, uh, the undertone there is that you know how how can you give access to people with interesting in, you know investment products that generally institutions have or uh, you know investors that have a lot of uh, uh, high net worth individuals who have a lot of uh, money to invest have and how do you kind of equalize some of that so that was also another kind of motivating factor for us is to uh, really bring uh, you know alternative investments, uh, make them more accessible, and do it in a manner that more and more people can participate uh, in such investments. So, in this model, how do you guys make money? Yeah, so uh, actually, it's pretty straightforward. We uh, we charge uh, you know uh, essentially w w what happens is when we put investments up on the platform, uh, when you're earning interest. Uh, so let's say the investment is generating you know 10% interest. Uh, we pay investors 9% and then we maybe we keep 1% uh, management fee. So that's one of the ways uh, our revenue model works. 
Okay, understood. So obviously you've raised uh, a bit of money for this, is that right? That's correct. So how much have, have you guys raised to date? Yeah, so we have raised over, uh, you know, $85 million in equity capital. And then we have access to a variety of uh, different uh, warehouse and credit facilities, uh, about uh, about $200 million uh, of, of warehouse facilities. And I know that uh, right uh, at the time of the Series A, there was uh, a little of a scare with shutting down. So what happened there? Yeah, so that was... Uh, you know, that was uh, actually, uh, as I was saying, right, entrepreneurship is always about kind of those uh, uh, highs and lows. Even for Yodel, we, I remember uh, back in 2006, we, uh, we were, uh, you know, there was uh, essentially, uh, we had a revenue target and we said, listen, uh, we were uh, having hard time raising capital and uh, we had a revenue target and we said, hey, if you don't hit this revenue target, we probably need to fold because we have no way to fund the business. And luckily, we were able to hit the revenue target. And then a few months later, uh, you know, Bessemer uh, invested in our in our Series A. So those type of things always, uh, you know, happen. Uh, fortunately for Yield Street, uh, you know, we always had focus on revenue right from kind of day one. And you know, being a repeat entrepreneur with a strong kind of team. Uh, you know, we didn't have fundraising scares, uh, you know, and uh, and were able to uh, actually attract uh, capital uh, right from our seed round with some very, very, uh, uh, very, very good, uh, good investors. So feel very fortunate and, and lucky. Was that easy to raise money this second time around? Uh, yeah, I think it was uh, it was easy for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, obviously you had a track record. Number two is, as I said, right. I think there is a, there is a big uh, there is a big gap in the market which still exists today, and I think there is a huge opportunity um, to to really make uh, investing ubiquitous and get people all types of investing ubiquitous. So I think uh, there was a strong business case. The 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 TAM is massive um, when it comes to kind of the investing ecosystem. So, so it was really a, a combination of uh, what's happening with regards to your actual problem that you're trying to solve, but also broadly speaking, the market was, uh, you know, adopting to fintech, and you know, fintech I, in some ways is still uh, in its uh, early early days. And uh, but as you can see in the last uh, few few years, uh, it's really taking off, and especially this year, if you see what's happening with Robinhood and Chime and and bunch of big, uh, you know, uh, neo banks and investing platforms. There's a lot of momentum uh, in in terms of the future of fintech. Very nice, very nice. And and there was a really interesting story. I mean, talking about the craziness that happens to on on fundraising. What happened when you were in Dubai and the car broke down? Oh yeah, this was. Uh, we were. Uh, we were actually uh, uh, on a business trip to Dubai, and we were meeting uh, Mubadla, which is uh, an investment firm, uh, you know, uh, uh, and and we had a meeting there. And we were driving from Dubai to Abu Dhabi, which is where they are they are based, and uh, the idea was to you know discuss collaboration and and opportunities uh, both on the venture equity side, but also they do a lot of uh, deals in the energy real estate sector to to kind of just see you know how we could partner, and. Um, uh, a funny story was uh, that we we were going for the meeting and our car broke down. And uh, for for us, you know, Dubai highways, as you know, are are very very um, fast. 
and it was 110 degree weather sweltering we are kind of in our in our suits and coats and there we are trying to hitchhike you know and and fortunately for us uh, uh there was uh, there was a car that stopped and we were able to actually get to the meeting you know uh, uh only 10 minutes late so you know there those are all the kind of the fun things of uh, entrepreneurship where you have to like think and act fast there you go just like what you did in february 2017 when the website crashed is that yeah, right that's, yeah. that's another story is uh, that is that is really you know super interesting you know alejandro as you know right two sided marketplaces are always tough and and hard to crack right whether it's ebay whether it's uber whether it's airbnb where you need both side like supply and demand side and in our uh, in our business yield street is a platform where on one side you have investors who are looking for investment opportunities and on the other side there are investment opportunities themselves that we have to present to the investors and as i said earlier you know me and my co-founder michael come from two different backgrounds and when we started the company we had a bet michael said hey you know you will never be able to acquire consumers online and get them to come to the platform and invest into alternatives and i said that uh, i said the opposite which is uh, you know uh, we will not be able to find enough investments that we can put up on the on the platform and uh, for the first couple of years obviously when you are a new investment platform it takes time to build that trust and credibility and the brand uh, as a startup where you know if you are uh, you know expecting people to come we are a completely self serve platform right alejandro we don't have sales people that call investors and sell them and things like that right like you have to come to the platform learn about our investment products read the material get educated and then you make a make a choice to invest in the you know investments that are available to you and uh, obviously it's a tall order and so we had this bet like you know what how's how's the supply demand going to play out and for the first couple of years our investment used to remain open for weeks and months because you know nobody had heard for, for of our platform and it was still a new company and uh, there was a special day in february february 20th 2017 so uh, about 3 years ago uh, when we launched a new investment and there were so many investors so the way our launch process works alejandro is that we you know send an email out to our community that an investment is going to launch and then at at whatever specific period of time so let's say thursday at 6 pm and then everybody comes to the platform and when we announce the investment all the materials are you know available for people to look at and study them and if they have questions they can you know call us you know many times we will have webinars or supporting documentation etc and then at thursday 6 o'clock they come in and like choose how much money they want to invest and the deal remains open till it's fully subscribed and so you know as i was saying in 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 this uh, in this day in february uh when we opened the offering there were so many people that showed up on the website that the website completely crashed and uh, you know obviously we were a startup at that time running in like four aws boxes and uh, you know uh, that was kind of a you know important milestone in our con- company's evolution because that's when we uh, that's when we really um, um kind of started to to see investor demand um, you know mushroom and really grow and was one of the pivotal moments because after that you know we uh, we really saw a lot of strong investor interest and lot of our uh, investments when we launch uh, uh, get subscribed extremely fast so a very very exciting day for us so obviously you're talking about you know things that lead to 
to breakthroughs, no? And, and you know, there's one question here yeah. that comes to mind, and that is, basically, let's say if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the, let's say, five years later, that, that vision that you had for Yield Street is completely realized, what does that world look like? So I, I use this term called self-driving money. And what that means is that can money automatically work for you? What happens is all of us are focused. We have certain skill set, right? And our skill set is to go to work, earn money. But then what does the money do? Most of us actually sit on cash. We don't invest most of our money. Why? Because we're always afraid that, hey, I'm going to need the money. Do I have enough money? Not have money. We're always saving for something. And that is the reason why today there is $5 trillion of cash sitting in people's savings and checkings account, right? Earning, as you know, it's zero interest. In Europe, in some countries, there's negative interest. And so my real vision is that uh, how can we take that money and make it work for you? even when you're sleeping, because that's what happens when you are high net worth or a family office. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have ways to earn money, you have your 401k, your all of your savings accounts, etc. Money should come into a platform and then, you know, it should be deployed depending upon your time horizon. Uh, so let's say you want, you know, let's say you have $100, you want $10 in the next 30 days, you want $40 in the next two years, and then you want to keep the $50 for your retirement. How do you take that pie and automatically completely distribute that out in variety of different products based on your risk tolerance, your age, your preference? Do you need cash flow today or no? Do you need cash flow in the future? And a platform does that for you automatically. So then what you can do is focus on two things that are the most valuable for you. One is to be focused on what you love doing, which is your work, whatever that may be. And second, is to enjoy your spare time with your friends or family, you know, really chasing your hobbies. So that for me is kind of the self-driving money concept is very powerful. And today, because of technology, digitization and access to data, I think some of these things are, are possible. You know, if you an inspiration comes to mind is Ant Financials, right, which was a payment company out of Alibaba. And what Ant Financials is trying to do is take that vast data that Alibaba has on his user base and create financial products that are you know, automated, right? So that's kind of the dream for me. I feel that you know, Yield Street mission is you know, if by 2025 we can help 10 million people generate uh, you know, at least $10 billion outside the stock market in, in earnings, that would be a, a massive... Uh, massive accomplishments because that would be a, a real value add that we would have created in people's life if we can able to help them create wealth outside the stock market so that would that would be really my dream very cool and how big are, are you guys today how big is yield street for the people that are listening to get an idea yeah so you know yield street has about you know a little over 225000 uh, investor signups on the platform we have done uh, a little over uh, $1.4 billion in investments funded on the platform. Uh, we have funded close to 190 investments. Uh, and, you know, we have 120 investments that are fully matured and paid off. Uh, we have returned $650 million back to our investors in distributions, in principal and interest payments. And that's uh, that's really where we are. We are about 100 people, uh, you know, headquarters uh, in uh, in New York City. 
and we have offices in brazil and and uh, greece and and malta so uh, so that's uh, that is yield street for you very cool very cool so i guess uh, obviously now you know this is your second rodeo so full of um you know, the good, the bad, the ugly. I mean, this is what entrepreneurship is all about. It's not a straight line. So I guess if you had that opportunity of having the ear of that younger Melinda that was thinking about launching a business, what would that be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self, given what you know now and why? That is a great, uh, that is always a, always a great question. Uh, listen, I think uh, it's uh, entrepreneurship is is very very exciting, and uh, you know it is it is something that gives you a lot of joy because there's something that you're uh, building from from the ground up. So it's an incredible journey, but it's also a very hard journey. So I kind of give a couple of pieces of uh, you know. If I I knew how to do it before, I would give a couple of different pieces of advice, and this is something that I tell my companies that I advise and 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 anybody that would ask me that if I I knew that earlier in my career that would be amazing. First thing is that entrepreneurship is not about you; it's about your family. It is very important. It's a joint journey. So whether it's your significant other, wife, girlfriend, fiance, uh, they need to be bought into because the ups and downs of entrepreneurship is going to test that and uh, you know you need to be uh, you're not just entrepreneurs alone your family is also um, uh, entrepreneurs along with you so make sure you have that buy-in because that is going to be very helpful uh, when uh, when there are uh, times where you know uh, you we still have to pay our bills and and make sure that we can provide for our family and things like that uh, the other thing is don't romanticize it right um, don't romanticize entrepreneurship because uh, you know what happens is people hold on to their ideas for too long and i have seen that being an angel investor just advisor and things like that you as an entrepreneurship obviously uh, as an entrepreneur always believe that yours is the greatest idea but the market needs to believe that more than you you will always believe it right so how do you make that decision and when do you make that decision that is very very important um is to understand the product market fit and what is going to be the catalyst to understand the product market fit. And by the way, when I mean product market fit, I just don't mean like raising venture money because you may be able to raise venture money, angel money, whatever maybe, and keep going. But is it really worth, uh, you know, that extra two years of solving that problem where you know you may not have the product market fit? Which takes me to the next one which is you have to be very crystal clear about what is the problem you're trying to solve. Like, is the TAM big enough? And is the problem significant enough? Okay. And once you establish that, then I think uh, you have to understand, let, you know, I always say, right, re let revenue be your driver. Because what has happened is that in the last, you know, 15, 20 years, like there is so much emphasis on what happens is you only get to see off the 10 success stories, right? And we all get mesmerized by it. And they are amazing role models to have, whether it's Airbnb, whether it's Uber, whether it's Google, whether it's Facebook, whether it's WhatsApp. And these are amazing companies. They have changed industries, right? But for that, they come in the 0.1% of the, of the population. What about the 99.9% .9 of the companies? And so for us mere models, we also have to think about like, hey, 
if you have the product market fit if you have the tam is your product some something that people are willing to pay for and you need to test that hypothesis right uh, which brings me to the last thing which is uh, you have to test that and time does not scale you only have a finite amount of time so the way to test that is make sure you're not building the perfect product not waiting for the extra 6 months or a year you got to get the product out to the market and test the test that product and alandro that's so important we launched we started coding for yield street jan 4th 2015 and we launched it on april 6th 2015 in 90 days and we launched i mean obviously you know as a consumer you could come and invest like choose an investment and invest on the platform and it kind of gave you this end to end kind of seamless feel but we knew a lot of the stuff on the back end was all manual but we wanted to get the product out there so people could see what does this website look like what is this investment platform all about and give us that real time feedback that's very important because time is not going to scale and so you need to have a team that's uh, you know that can scale with you and uh, and so those are the types of things that always come to my mind when you know people are you know trying to start the companies and i wish some of these things i knew earlier on in in my career um whether it was revenue whether it was product market fit and how do you test for that product market fit how do you bring the product to the market quickly and that's what i would i would tell all entrepreneurs that are listening wow i love it i love it milin and and for the people that are listening what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi they can go to uh, yieldstreet.com and sign up and to get in touch with me milind at yieldstreet.com Amazing. Well, Milian, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show today. Alejandro, thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So, also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, You can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.